the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm Denver Frederick, and thank you for joining me on this August evening. Tonight, we're going to discuss drug addiction and the dying off of the coral reefs and what two organizations are doing to improve the picture for each. My first guest will be Fred Munch, the president of the Center on Addiction. He urges that people who have extra opioids left over from their prescription get rid of them immediately. 60% of people, and could be even a little bit more, who started using got it from a friend or family member uh, in terms of having extra opioids. So getting rid of those opioids is key because you're going to have a teenager who comes in, takes it for pain, and then they start taking it more and more. It's unsupervised. And then you will hear from Sam Teicher the co-founder and chief reef officer at Coral Vita. They are working to bring back the coral reefs, which are dying off at an alarming rate. When you're thinking about, you know, half the world's reefs already being dead and on track to lose over 90% by 2050, that's, it's an ecological tragedy. I've, I've been a scuba diver since I was a kid, so that really hurts to lose such an incredible life, but that's also the lifeblood of so many communities, nations, and industries all around the world. But first, the Business of Giving News Digest for Sunday, August 11th. Too much pressure to meet unrealistic fundraising goals, coupled with too little pay and frustrating organizational cultures, is driving away fundraisers, according to a new Chronicle Philanthropy survey. Half of all fundraisers surveyed expect to leave their jobs in the next two years, and 3 in 10 said that they recently left or plan to leave the development field altogether. More people than ever have strong confidence that scientists are acting in the public's best interest. But it's still only 35% of the population. That compares, though, to 21% back in 2016. Ethiopia just planted 353 million trees in a single day. The country's Green Legacy campaign aims to plant 4 billion trees this year in an attempt to restore the soil and mitigate some of the effects of climate change. The world's land and water resources are being exploited at unprecedented rates, a new United Nations report warns, which combined with climate change is putting dire pressure on the ability of humanity to feed itself. And finally, Intercontinental Hotel Group, which owns chains like Holiday Inn, uses 200 million tiny plastic bottles for champagne and lotion each year. They're products that travelers love to bring home. They're also a big source of plastic waste, which is why the company now plans to end the era of the bathroom miniature. By 2021, the hotels will shift to larger bottles and bulk dispensers in all 843,000 of its guest rooms. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Fred Munch from the Center on Addiction right after this. Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. Upstart Collab is a new national collaboration connecting artists, impact investors, and social entrepreneurs. Upstart's mission is to create more opportunities for artist innovators to deliver social impact at scale. Follow them on Twitter at Upstart Collab.
Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash businessofgiving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. There are many challenges that currently face this country. Gun violence is certainly at the top of everyone's mind, but so too is drug addiction and the opioid crisis. Over 120 people die each and every day from an opioid overdose, an organization that is on a mission to transform how this nation addresses this crisis is the Center on Addiction. And it's a pleasure to have with us tonight their president, Fred Munch. Good evening, Fred, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Denver, thanks so much for having me on the show and for doing this show. Give us a little bit of history on the Center on Addiction, including the recent merger with the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids. Sure. So uh, I was the uh, president and CEO of the Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, and we merged uh, with the Center on Addiction, which recently rebranded from the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse. Um, The Partnership for Drug-Free Kids, formerly known as the Partnership for Drug-Free America, Mm -hmm. was founded in the 80s. Uh, It was founded in in collaboration uh, with the Ted Bates Advertising Agency, but really brought to life by the American Association of Advertising Agencies, the four A's, where they got together and they said essentially – hey, we can sell Doritos, we can also unsell drugs. And that was in the uh, 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 time of the crack epidemic. So people were very frightened uh, for their children's future. And the iconic ad came out of that campaign, which was This Was Your Brain on Drugs, which both had positive and negative reactions from people over over time. But memorable. Known as Mm -hmm. one of the top 100 ads of all time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly a memorable ad. And what grew out of that was there is an appetite to change attitudes around public health and specifically around drug-taking behavior and and adolescent, in particular, substance misuse. And so the partnership grew out of grants through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. They worked with ONDCP, which is the national uh, federal organization that handles um, drug policy, and started creating ads. Up to 3,000 – actually, over 3,000 ads were created over the 30-year span of the partnership. What started to happen, though, like – uh, you know, ac- across the the spectrum of media and marketing, was things began to change in terms of direct consumer advertising. Uh, and over the last ten years, there's been a real evolution from media campaigns that were targeting traditional advertising, like uh, TV ads, yeah. to social media, to digital media, to engaging people. Because once you try to change an attitude. What people want to do is, so what do I do next? Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to do something, but what do I do? (laughs) So the next evolution of the partnership came with their web resources. And uh, uh, so people would come to the website. And then what we learned over time in all behavior change is that uh, a a PDF isn't enough all the time. We need more. So uh, fortunately, actually, I was brought into the partnership in 2011 to help start their helpline. So not only did people have an ad to think about changing their attitudes and a call to action to the website, they now had a call to action to a helpline to get support from someone. Uh, And that started growing as well. Uh, What changed 
over time as well was the digital revolution. And I left the partnership and was fortunate enough to be recruited back in because of my work on digital health to build out the digital health capacity of the partnership to keep people engaged through text messaging, Facebook, chat, email, to really start the conversation with family members. Um, and, and so what we evolved into was a media and service organization. Mm -hmm. So change attitudes through media, engage people, bring them in, and then offer them support and guidance because they're not getting it from outside. And our particular focus is on parents and caregivers. Um, so that's the history of the partnership. We've been fortunate enough to merge with the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse, which is now known as Center on Addiction, and we're all known as Center on Addiction. Got you. This was January 1st um, of this year, and CASA's history is amazing in itself, started by Joe Califano. Mm -hmm. um, he wanted a policy he think tank. He was a former secretary of HHS. That's correct, for, and a, a, a powerhouse in really changing the culture around smoking. Uh, he was the one who championed laws throughout uh, of, of smoke-free workplaces. Yeah, I recall. Yeah, Joe. Joe is a force of nature. He's still on the board. He's <laughs> still involved, and um, Joe wanted to say start a policy think tank. He wanted to say we we can do we can make some changes here, but we need a think tank. We need to do research. We need to pour all our efforts into this because if you look at the personal and public health costs of addiction in America, it's more than heart disease. Yeah, it's amazing. So it's, it's amazing. So, and, and that's not even taking the intangibles mm -hmm. of relationships, troubled relationships, domestic violence. I mean, you name it. In, in terms of our criminal justice system, people are being arrested or were being arrested for having you know, an ounce of pot on them. And they were, it was ruining their lives with a felony offense. Mm -hmm. um, so Joe really wanted to change that. And he also wanted to empower families. He wanted to empower families at the same time. And what we found was we were the services and media group. They were the policy and research group. We were these two organizations. We started chatting and we started saying, how do, how do we collaborate? Yeah. You want to do more services. You have a great crew of credible researchers. We want to do more evaluation and monitoring and outcomes monitoring. Uh, they want to do more media. We want to do more policy because we're doing advocacy. The conversation just got started and said, hey, why don't we merge? Yeah, yeah. Well, you complement each other very, very nicely. But a lot of organizations do, but they don't merge, <laughs> I mean, particularly in this sector. <laughs> what, what was it about this relationship and what are the keys to a successful merger? Because I think everybody out there listening would say this sector would be more effective if more organizations yes. did what the two of you have done. Yes. Uh, so there's, there's a few reasons for merging. One is what you said. We have a very similar mission um, and goal. Uh, uh, but we also have different strengths mm -hmm. and each complements each other in a way that we felt we could never do alone. As they looked at our strategic plan and we looked at theirs, we realized we could help each other. But mergers don't happen mainly because of ego. Yes. And what we had to do was sit down and I was very fortunate uh, that our boards – uh, as well as their chief executive, Creighton Drury, who's the CEO, mm -hmm. and I'm the president, sat down and we essentially said, how do we complement each other? How can we make sure to continue the mission of this organization? And how do we let go of some of the ego, each individually? And we threw it on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
even with that, it's hard. Uh, being the president and CEO to just being the president means my role has shifted dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so when I was going through this is to say to myself, I have to be a servant leader. And the only way we can combat addiction is if we merge and come together and I have to let go of my ego. And Creighton said the same thing. And we have a collaborative decision-making process. We disagree on certain things. As the CEO, he has more say than I do. And that's okay because we are respectful of each other and listen. And we know – that the other thing that worked is we know we each have different strengths. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were both – more on the marketing and ad side and and uh, or both on the service side colliding. we'd be colliding mm-hmm. um, so looking for organization where there's complementary strengths and complementary strengths not only in mission but in personnel I think was really helpful so you know it's funny what you say about ego too Fred because you know ego exists in the corporate world but it is actually less of a problem in the corporate world because you have shareholders. That's right. And the shareholders don't really care about the ego. They care about their stock and the share price. So market forces will make those mergers happen. But we do not have that in the nonprofit sector. So the ego can be the ultimate roadblock. So with this new organization, Fred, um, you have four pillars that it is based upon. Could you tell us what those are? Sure. Those four pillars are um, the two organizations' primary missions merged. One is to empower families and make sure that families get what they need from prevention to recovery. The second is to advance health care and advance care for those people struggling. And that includes helping healthcare systems implement new addiction treatments, evidence-based addiction treatments, technical assistance to those organizations, data analysis and data mining to do predictive, um, predictive modeling mm-hmm. to make sure we can identify people and research and cutting-edge research to make sure we're doing the right treatments and developing the right treatments. We also focus on media and making sure we're changing culture, so that media and culture. And lastly, we focus on policy and advocacy, and those are the four pillars of this organization, of the merged organization. Very exciting. Well, let's turn our attention to the opioid crisis. And if I can start really with a basic question, what are opioids? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Opioids are uh, an analgesic uh, pain reliever that uh, hits on the opioid receptors in the brain. Mm -hmm. So what it does is really two things. It it creates a euphoric effect um, as well as reducing pain sensitivity. And that combination has been used to treat pain for many years. It's also been used to create a euphoric feeling in heroin, morphine, methadone. There's a whole class, uh, Oxycontin, mm-hmm. Percocet, a whole class of substances that act on those receptors. And uh, so what happened in terms of opioids is uh, there was a mass <laughs> marketing effort to put them out to treat chronic pain. And this is where we are now. Um, and so I, I don't want to go too far yeah, into no. this. I, you know, I lead, lead, lead the conversation, but um, essentially that, that is yeah, what The last numbers do. I saw, I yeah. think that there were 11.7 billion pills uh, prescribed last year, and that's 36 pills per person, which is pretty insane. It's How outrageous. quickly can you get addicted to opioids? 
So the CDC has done some amazing studies as well as some longer-term studies. Um, and uh, there is a misconception that taking opioids you know, after X number of days will get you addicted. Mm-hmm. People react very differently to opioids. The CDC study was alarming because what it found was a seven-day prescription, and some of the studies say five-day prescription, increases your likelihood of becoming opioid-dependent significantly. And so what that means is just getting a taste of how those opioids feel will increase your chances later. Now, if you're taking opioids for 30 days, you're going to develop physiological dependence. That doesn't mean you will become addicted. But what we're seeing now is people who take opioids even for a few days, particularly younger people, which is they get that feeling, then they stop, and maybe there's something going on like, I did this. I was okay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a big deal. And then they try it again, and then they start to develop some physiological dependence. It makes you feel good. There's no immediate consequences to it. There's usually only benefits. The people who throw up for the five days of taking it, don't take it again. They're lucky. <laughs> they're, they're lucky. They, you're absolutely right. They're lucky. And so what we're finding is the flooding of opioids into particularly the Appalachian Trail mm-hmm. completely created a generation who were addicted to opioids and uh, the, the range of opioid-related uh, substances. And whether it's from the pharmaceutical manufacturers, Purdue and, and the such, the distributors who pushed it out, who yeah. didn't put, put the gates up, um, you know, the MDs who are prescribing and prescribing, uh, the, you know, as, as, uh, as people say, there's plenty of blame to go around and we have to focus on solutions right now. Yeah. And it sounds like from what you're saying that if you are taking opioids for pain, let's say after surgery, and uh, the pain has gone away and you have some pills left, it's probably the best thing to do is get rid of those pills. There is no question. It's get rid of those pills yeah. immediately. Mm-hmm. There's drug take-back sites. We work with Google on drug take-back day, but there's also you can drop them off at a local pharmacy. Getting rid of those opioids. If you look at 60% of people, and could be even a little bit more, who started using got it from a friend or family member, Uh, in terms of having extra opioids. So getting rid of those opioids is key because you're going to have a teenager who comes in, takes it for pain, and then they start taking it more and more. It's unsupervised. But what we're seeing now is if you really look at the data, you don't have to take opioids for acute pain. Mm -hmm. The data is very clear. Ibuprofen or sodium naproxen work just as well. So there's been a marketing effort to make sure that people are taking opioids when they don't have to. And if our first line was taking Advil or something, you know, whatever it is, and then go back to your doctor. Um, But we have to shift the perception that people need opioids first, and we're starting to do that, and then we'll be able to tackle some of that over-prescribing. Yeah, so there are a lot of alternatives then to pain relief other than uh, opioids, although some of them are not fully reimbursed by Medicare. That that is a big problem. So when you look at uh, some of the medical devices out there, Mm -hmm. when you look at some of the uh, local anesthetic shots, for example, that are out there that last a few days, not all of them are reimbursed. And until that happens, 
doctors don't know what to do for their patients. They want to help their patients. Doctors have the best intentions for the most part. They want to help their patients. They don't know what to do. And often saying take an Advil, they don't feel comfortable saying that. They want to give them something. So I think we have to do some re-education but also provide more reimbursement for alternative uh, pain treatments. By and large, how do teens first get their hands on opioids? It's typically uh, either they've been prescribed opioids, but more than likely than not, they're getting it from a friend or family member from the medicine cabinet. Oh, wow. And so this is why getting rid of those pills is so crucial and so important. And that data saying just taking an opioid a couple times uh, increases your likelihood and risk is so crucial for us to understand that we should have a zero tolerance in at, at least uh, uh, acute non-chronic pain for young people in terms of opioids. I think of my own history. I'm in recovery from heroin mm-hmm. addiction. I tried pills as a kid. Um, I was not one of these people who were prescribed opioids and then right then became addicted. I was a kid. I partied. It was it was something I did. I tried certain things and people said I would get addicted and I didn't. And then later, it just spun out of control because I thought I could handle it. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we're seeing with kids is that they think they can handle things because they don't have those immediate consequences and then things spin out of control. Right. And sometimes you can handle it one day, but that's the exact right. same intake the next day is a completely different result and outcome. And kids can't believe that could be the case. Exactly. Yep. Uh, Well, for those who are addicted to drugs or alcohol or cigarettes, for that matter, how much of them, uh, those people started before they were age 18? Uh, It's, yeah, we're about 90%. 90%. And so uh, one of our, our core missions at Center on Addiction is to delay, delay, delay. Yeah. The brains are still growing. And so we have a number of programs directed at parents and family members to teach them to delay as much as possible. Uh, With recreational marijuana uh, laws changing, uh, there's going to be more availability. There's availability of alcohol. We need to make sure to remind ourselves that it's not benign and to remind our young people and support our young people to delay, delay, delay until they're old enough to make a decision on their own. What can parents do to protect their children and loved ones before they start? Before they start. Uh, there's there's many things family members can do, parents and caregivers can do. The first is is proper modeling, mm-hmm. um, is is being a good model in terms of, you know, there's the class, uh, there's the, the recent emergence of mommy juice. Oh, mommy needs a drink and, and daddy needs his beer. Saying you need something to get out of yourself, shifting that language that if you are going to drink, to drink moderately, not to say you're using it as a coping mechanism, not to normalize it, to empower our kids that they can be resilient without drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. So that modeling is crucial. Uh, We know that parents who get drunk in front of their kids are much more likely to have kids who have problems with alcohol later. Um, So that's one. The other is communication. Communicating with your kids, we often hope that things are going to be okay. Kids go out because the majority of people who try a substance don't become addicted. Right. So you think your kid's going to fall into that. But the problem is those who do try have a much higher likelihood of becoming <laughs> addicted. Yeah, for sure. So communicating, talking about it, 
And then the other is boundary setting and monitoring, Mm -hmm. is being aware, being there. I have a 16-year-old. I am awake when they come home. I have a conversation with them. I talk to them. I know where they're going before they go. And they're going to lie to me. That's going to happen. Teenagers do that. But we have open communication about it. And I set expectations of not using. If they break those expectations, that's something I have to deal with. But setting those expectations we know will reduce teen alcohol and drug use. Mm -hmm. So, Fred, let's say things have gone a little bit off the track and it has become time to intervene to have the conversation with your child. How should you approach it and what does a parent need to know and be mindful of? So uh, being open being loving, not being accusatory. This is not a moral failing. Mm -hmm. This is something that makes sense. When you look at why teenagers use, they use to be, to socialize. They use because they're bored. Mm -hmm. They use to just see what it feels like. They use because their peers are using. It makes them feel more comfortable. All these immediate effects, just like with opioids, right? There's some good immediate effects that they see. They don't see the longer term. So that's the first is being non-judgmental and open. Learning how to communicate and listen is is one of the most important. Getting their point of view, not lecturing, understanding why they're using what they're doing, understanding what they want, understanding what they want from life. But then once you start to think about it, is setting those proper boundaries. So a lot of the prevention you can use once someone's already started using, making sure you're scheduling alternate activities because what happens is very often kids start to surround themselves with peers who are also using. Yes. So making sure they have a heterogeneous peer group. And then I highly recommend getting some sort of individual counseling. They don't have to go to a treatment center, mm-hmm. but some sort of individual counseling and empowerment. We're building resilience. We want kids to be above that influence. How do we build healthy, resilient kids and focusing on the positive and not just taking away something? Yeah. And I would also imagine it's important that uh, mom and dad are on the same page and have a unified front. Unified front is crucial. Thank you so much for bringing that up because we do see parents with mixed up. I did it as a kid. I'm fine. What's mm-hmm. the problem? Oh, you know, their parents want to. Kid- I played my mom off my dad. That's I was right. Going, look, I mean, this is the game we play. That's right. That's and that's what and kids do that and kids are masters at oh, it. Oh, they're great. Masters at it. And so having a unified front even if you disagree, finding that middle ground and at the at the partnership and center website we have lots of resources for parents and families to 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 have those conversations with your kids. Uh, so but it is crucial to be on the same page. How concerned are you about e-cigarettes? Very concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 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 we saw it brewing uh, for the last five or six years. It was billed as, you know, it's going to help you quit. That's it was right. billed as harm reduction. We knew it was not harm reduction. If it was harm reduction, it should be behind the counter at a pharmacy. Um, and it's not. It's at a local candy store. Right. Tangerine um, flavors. Tangerine or whatever they flavors. Are, yeah. And uh, the the line that it's safer than smoking, there is uh, combustible cigarettes. There is no evidence right now because we don't have the data. That's right. Um, and the data that's coming in um, is, is not great. The bubblegum lungs and what's coming on, we have no clue. What scares me is that teenagers and family members – somehow think 
there's less risk associated with this. We know that teens that start vaping are more likely to start combustible cigarettes when they don't have nicotine. We also know that their brains are forever changed once they start adding nicotine into it. They're getting this immediate reward. They're getting a surge of dopamine. And so what they're doing is instead of uh, focusing on their friends or playing an instrument, their mind shifts and it becomes salient. That addiction becomes sound. They're looking for nicotine. We do not want our kids, we do not want anyone to be focusing on drug seeking. Mm -hmm. And this is what kids are doing. Uh, so we have a new guide. We have parents who are calling us now to help them. We're very focused on, on working with other organizations who are focused on this issue. And we see this as one of the, the most important uh, uh, public health emergencies that we should be focusing on uh, in, in, at the current time. That's great. Absolutely. You know, you alluded to this before, but you've been a leader in leveraging digital platforms to deal with substance abuse disorders. What are some of the latest tools out there that are available? Yeah, so uh, I've been very fortunate to have done this for my career as a psychologist, both in academia and the startup world, and and now uh, with Center on Addiction. And uh, when we look at uh, both prevention, intervention, uh, and recovery is there's a few key components to engaging people. And what we want to do is keep something salient. We want to do it in the most effortless way possible. Mm -hmm. And we want to adapt it and give it to people at the right time and tailor it to their personal needs. And so uh, I'll give you an example of what we're doing at Center on Addiction and then talk about a few others. At Center on Addiction, what we do is we focus on the family. We focus on parents and caregivers. Why do we do that in particular is because there's no reimbursement really. There, there's limited reimbursement for family members. And we know that when family members are empowered and trained, that they can have the most impactful outcome on both prevention and intervention. The research is clear. But what we also know is that there's not a lot of urgency. There's no treatment center for a parent. They're not going. And if they're going, it's just a collateral visit right. as part of it. So we know that parents aren't going to go and seek out care also because they're like, oh, my kid's going to treatment. Everything's great. What we do is we lower the burden. Mm -hmm. So we allow people to come in via SMS. We engage people via Facebook Messenger, via email, via chat, via a phone line. They can schedule. So we start the process of engaging people with their preferred communication medium. So what we're doing is if they're on SMS, they can just text us. So there's no effort. But then what digital has the amazing capacity to tailor. So what we do is we ask people a few questions. And based on that, we give them automated feedback. And we can give them feedback for 90 days. We can give them feedback for two years. But they're having those ongoing salient reminders of what they should do. Remind to ask questions, to communicate, to set boundaries, to tell your kid you love them. And what we do is we tailor it to the need state. So if there's a prevention parent, they get very different messages from a kid who's already using, from a kid who's in treatment and needs recovery. And then ongoing, what we do is we make sure we can adapt it. So let's say someone's an early intervention parent and what happens is they're talking to their kids and it turns out their kid's a little further along yeah. and they need treatment. They can simply type into their text message feed, treatment, and the whole intervention shifts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then if they want to talk to a treatment specialist, they can type in chat and within 24 hours, a specialist will get back to them and give them and help them navigate the treatment system. That's great. So what we want to do is be there. Mm -hmm. We want to be a salient presence 
in the lives of family members because it's so easy to ignore it. It's so easy to hope it gets better. And what we want to make sure is that people are vigilant about this. And digital technology and the mobile phone has changed all of that. Oh, that's for sure. No, you, um, that's an easy thing to say, I'll, I'll tackle this tomorrow. But uh, when you customize it like that and you have those kinds of reminders, it just puts it in front of your face and you say, eh, maybe I better do it now. Yep. What are policymakers doing and not doing <laughs> to address this crisis? So there, the, the opioid crisis has put more of a spotlight on, on uh, policymakers uh, uh, and some good things are happening. I would say uh, aside from we need way more money. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, six billion dollars. Uh, the money's going to states. Um, there, there are great things happening. Uh, the the money that is going to National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, and 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 the NIH and CDC and FDA. That's that's just a drop in the bucket. And people are doing good stuff with that. But we need a few things. Um, one is we need to change our parity laws. We need coverage for substance abuse and mental health, just like any medical condition. And when you look at the state level, when you look at insurers, we need pressure to get insurers to pay for care. Um, we need more money in the prevention space and it, it going directly to communities. Uh, we need more money overall in terms of the recovery space. So people want to fund treatment because there's a reimbursement stream. So they'll do that even though not everybody is reimbursing addiction treatment. But the recovery space is when real change happens. Uh, so when someone leaves treatment, they're out in the open. Mm -hmm. And so funding recovery and funding communities and funding the family, we know that when a family member is empowered, outcomes are significantly better. They've done studies where they've trained family members on something called community reinforcement and family training. And what they do is they essentially empower family members to essentially be therapists in the house. They teach them self-care. They also teach them how to communicate. When that's done, you have significantly higher recovery rates because the family members are the first, second, and third responders. The other thing we can do with family members is give them naloxone, train them on how to avoid overdose. If everyone had naloxone, we would reduce the overdose rates vastly significantly, but we do not have that. It should be free. The federal government should be paying for naloxone mm -hmm. to be out there. So there's a lot they can do. It's usually about money, but it's also about acknowledging that addiction should be treated like every other medical condition. Let me close with this, Fred. Uh, this is mighty tough work, but I know you approach it with tremendous energy and optimism. What makes you most optimistic right now that we're going to turn the corner on this and find our way? I think that addiction is part of the conversation and it hasn't been. It's gone from a moral failing and a criminal justice issue to a disease, a condition um, that people see people they knew as kids who get taken in by the grips of addiction and they understand this is not a moral failing. Addiction has a lot of negative side effects. Uh, very often people will steal be to feed their addiction. That is not the person. And what I'm most optimistic about is people see that recovery is possible. People see people speaking out. 
I want people to know I'm in recovery from heroin addiction. I want people to know that I was down a dark path. I went to many treatment centers. I thought of ending my life. I ended up after even being out of a treatment center and in recovery for a month, ended up in a jail cell. That things happen and but recovery is possible and I do think that people are starting to see that and the recovery movement is growing. Family members are becoming empowered to say, no, we demand treatment. We can change. The other thing is that I think people are also recognizing that there's a, a, a real drive towards wellness. And I don't think it's with everyone, but I think there's a little bit of a groundswell happening of we don't need substances to be better. Mm-hmm. We can be resilient. We can enjoy life without substances and we can enjoy it more. There's nothing more interesting than going to a club and not drinking <laughs> and seeing what that's like. It's a bizarre feeling. <laughs> it's empowering. You yeah. feel alive. And you remember it the next morning. <laughs> and you remember it the next morning, whether you want to or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, I, I'm empowered that there's such great people in this field and they're passionate and I think we're making a difference. Well, Fred Munch, the president of the Center on Addiction, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and what visitors will find there. Uh, we have two websites right now. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> the merger's I'm, not complete. The merger's not complete. Uh, I'll start with uh, www drugfree.org, drugfree.org. And that's the Partnerships Legacy site. We're merging Center on Addiction and Partnership. But the Partnerships site has all the resources for families. Uh, And those resources are how to talk to your kid at any age about substance use. Those resources are how to navigate the treatment system. What about vaping? And also, do you need to speak to someone? We're there for you. Do you need to speak with someone with lived experience? We have 400 parent coaches who have lived experience who will speak with you. So those resources are there. If you come to the website, please don't hesitate to reach out directly to our helpline specialists or just get the information you need or bring it to your community. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Fred. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Denver. Appreciate it. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. Technology can change lives, but underserved communities around the world have yet to experience all the benefits technology offers. Benetech is a nonprofit whose mission is to empower communities in need by creating scalable technology solutions. Their work has transformed how half a million people with disabilities access information, made it easier and safer for human rights defenders to document violations, and equipped environmental conservationists to protect ecosystems. Learn more by visiting Benetech.org. Follow the Business of Giving on Twitter at BizofGive and at Facebook.com slash Business of Giving. And now, back to the Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. Over 50% of the world's coral reefs have already been lost, and it's projected that 90% of them will die out by 2050. This is not only a huge problem for the oceans and those communities that depend upon them, but for all of us. What can possibly be done to reverse this trend? Coral Vita is a company that is working on an answer in a very creative and innovative fashion. And here to tell us about it is Sam Teicher, the co-founder of Coral Vita. Good evening, Sam, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening, Denver. Thanks for having me on. So let me start with the most basic of questions, and that is, what is a coral reef? 
a good question. Uh, so corals are pretty cool creatures. Uh, believe it or not, they are animals. Hmm. Uh, the kind of distant cousin of the, the jellyfish. Uh, but a, a coral is also pretty fascinating because as an animal, it's got plants living inside of it that makes rock. So you imagine sort of Finding Nemo or Blue Planet 2, and you think of all the beautiful colors you see in coral reefs. So corals are, are animals that feed, they're growing, but inside of their tissue, uh, inside of their skin, is uh, a, an algae that not only gives it its brilliant colors, but also helps feed coral as it sort of photosynthesizes, and the extra energy goes to the coral, which as it grows, as its skeleton, it makes uh, rock. And so... When you see coral reefs, what you're seeing are collections of sometimes millions of organisms all living together that are creating a, a living ecosystem that provides habitat for, believe it or not, up to a quarter of all marine life in the ocean. That is um, incredible. In addition to being really cool creatures in and of themselves, are really critical for the ocean and sort of one of the most amazing ecosystems on the planet. Sam, uh, in what parts of the world are they most plentiful? Coral reefs are most plentiful in the tropics. Uh, so there's nearly 100 countries and territories around the world, actually, where you can find coral reefs, usually in warm places, thinking about sandy beaches and palm trees. Uh, but they're found from Southeast Asia to the Caribbean, Hawaii, the Indian Ocean, all around the world. Um, but by a stat I mentioned before about a quarter of all marine life depending on coral reefs is even more astounding for me, at least, because coral reefs take up less than 1% of the ocean floor. That is amazing. So they're found in many places, but there's not a lot of them, but they're still incredibly important for all of us. And what are the benefits of them, then? So coral reefs have a number of different benefits. So with that marine life not only sustaining incredible biodiversity, some of the stuff many people love, like turtles and clownfish uh, and stingrays and, and all sorts of other sea life. That sea life in turn also feeds uh, people all around the world. So there's up to a billion people who depend on coral reefs for things like food, uh, as well as with those beautiful reefs comes, a, you know, an amazing tourist attraction. So people spend a lot of money to go snorkeling or scuba diving. And, and even if you do need those things and you want to just stick your toes in some nice white sand, that white sand usually comes from coral reef mm -hmm. so they power tourism economies and then as a final piece they also protect coastlines from storms so when uh, hurricanes or typhoons are coming through and you got a healthy coral reef off the coast on average one meter of healthy reef will reduce wave energy by 97 percent so in addition to being incredible ecosystems that feed people and sort of sustain economies, they also protect people's lives and homes by sort of acting as that buffer against storm surges. Mm -hmm. Well, in addition to the environmental uh, positive impacts they have, what is their socioeconomic impact on those communities? So those sort of the fisheries and the coastal protection and the tourism value of reefs, conservatively, they generate about $30 billion a year. Wow. So... When you're thinking about, you know, half the world's reefs already being dead and on track to lose over 90 percent by 2050, that's it's an ecological tragedy. I've, I've been a scuba diver since I was a kid, so that really hurts to lose such an incredible life. But that's also the lifeblood of so many communities, nations and industries all around the world. Mm -hmm. So if I'm living in Nebraska and aside from being a good global citizen who cares about the environment, why should I care about the coral reefs? 
Well, if you're in the great state of Nebraska, obviously you, the, the only coral reefs that might be around you are fossilized from a couple hundred million years ago. Yeah. So it's a pretty reasonable thought. Why, why do coral reefs matter to me? So if it's something as simple as you'd like a good seafood dinner, um, if those reefs die, there's no home for the fish and that food chain collapses, um, you're, you're not going to be getting that, uh, that tasty dinner that you were hoping for. On a more uh, serious level, you know, if people can't feed themselves, if their homes are going underwater, um, if they're not able to pay the bills because the tourism industry has collapsed, you got to also wonder, well, where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. Um, so for things like uh, the, the movement of refugees um, really can be spurred in large part due to environmental degradation and, and coral reefs, like I said before, sustain up to a billion people around the world. And if 90% of them are gone, you have to ask, ask yourself, where are these people going to go um, when they can't take care of their families? Yeah. So we talked about we've lost already 50% of them, and the projections are to lose 90% by 2050. What is killing them off? It's a, a series of different factors. So on the local level, you got things like pollution, mm-hmm. uh, overfishing, which might not come to mind, but basically if we're catching all the fish that eat, the sort of the plants and algae in the ocean. Those are some of the big competitors with corals. So if corals die, they can come back. But if you catch caught all the parrotfish, for example, which love to munch on algae, and the corals die, then the algae is going to take over and the corals can't come back. Got so you. there are, are ways to do better types of fishing um, so that we're not harming coral reefs. Uh, we're hearing in the news a lot that there are certain chemicals found in a variety of sunblocks. Uh, oxybenzone is the most common chemical that's bad for corals. So sometimes the, the skincare products we're wearing, we could do better, wear zinc-based sunscreens, we're not harming corals. But really moving forward, the, the big thing is climate change. Yeah, uh, Warming and acidifying oceans are devastating already coral reefs. It's not just some prediction for the future. We've seen incredible spikes in ocean temperatures in recent years that are unparalleled in human history. Uh, that are killing corals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so moving forward, that's really going to be one of the big threats to their health. Yeah. Well, this is quite the crisis, uh, which brings us to Coral Vita. What is your company doing to address the problem? So Coral Vita is a company I founded with my friend Gator Halper, and we are growing climate change resilient corals up to 50 times faster to restore dying reefs. Hmm. So in the past, 15, 20 years or so, the field of coral restoration has emerged. And listeners can almost imagine, like, reforestation, planting trees to bring a forest back. We can grow corals and plant them to help revitalize reef health. So what we do at Coral Vita is uh, we've teamed up with some of the world's leading scientists using methods known as assisted evolution to strengthen the resiliency of corals to threats like warming and acidifying oceans as well as this new technique known as micro-fragmenting, where we can basically grow corals that normally take decades to reach the size of a dinner plate in nature. We can reach that size now in a few months. Wow. So we grow these diverse and resilient corals and then use a land-based farm. So almost imagine an aquaculture facility. We're pumping seawater through tanks, and the corals grow in there for 6, 12, 18 months before we then go back out in the ocean. I often head down with... Uh, drills and marine epoxy glue and just plug the corals back out into the reef Mm -hmm. and with that type of work especially as you know our leaders are putting in measures to stop killing corals by ending pollution and overfishing and addressing climate change we can help preserve reefs into the future despite the threats they face and then the last 
piece of it is that we are doing this as a mission-driven company. Mm-hmm. Um, looking at those values around coral reefs I mentioned before with tourism and fisheries and coastal protection, trying to transition the reef restoration space out of small-scale grant-funded projects to a large-scale self-sustaining industry where the customers who depend on healthy reefs can pay to restore them. Well, let me dig a little bit deeper on all of what you just said, beginning with how do you make corals climate-resistant? It's a great question. Uh, we often get asked, you know, these corals are dying. What's the point of putting them back out there if they're going to die? And it's something that has to be considered. So one of the things we can do is because we have this land-based system, uh, we control the growing conditions in our tanks. Mm-hmm. And so not only can we make those conditions ideal uh, for the corals to grow in and they'll be happy as is, but we can also look at future projections, for example, temperature rise and crank up the temperature in our tanks uh, and effectively train the corals so that they have this ability to, to sort of internalize these, these new conditions and build that into their own resiliency. And we can see which corals are the winners, which are the losers. Uh, it's worth noting we're always using native coral, whatever country we're, we're working in, so that when the corals we put back out there not only are from that place, but actually have been shown to survive better. They're like, oh, I know what the jacuzzi kind of feels like, so that they have an ability to withstand these deteriorating ocean conditions as we do our restoration work. Yeah, um, a little bit of natural selection going on, it sounds like, which is really very, very smart. And you also can acidify the water to a greater degree than what they would have been coming from, right? Yeah, so we can also play around with things like pH uh, to help the corals uh, acclimate to to acidification as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you talked a little bit about assisted evolution, and uh, I guess I've read you can grow these things at 50 times the rate of nature. And how does that occur? Yeah, that's pretty exciting. So that's that's courtesy of uh, some research that was done by our advisor, Dr. David Vaughn. Mm-hmm. He uh, sort of helped pioneer this technique known as microfragmenting for the reef restoration field. So the simplest way of thinking about it is uh, a coral, going back to being an animal, it's made up of all these little uh, sort of almost mouths called polyps. And that's where the corals eat from um, part of the day. And they all sort of make clones of themselves as they grow out further and further. And, and what we can basically do is cut the corals almost down into the individual polyps so put them into tiny little pieces, separate them from one another, and then they have a natural healing process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then these corals will fuse back into themselves. So instead of one polyp growing into three, growing into 12, growing into 25, and, and for some corals that can take years and years, now that can happen in months so that we can grow something like a big, bouldering brain coral uh, in 6 to 12 months instead of 25 to 50 years. That is incredibly cool. Uh, Sam, do you work with a local community on these projects? We do. That's a big part of our model. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gator and I, you know, we're, I'm from Washington, D.C., he's from San Diego. Uh, we love the ocean, but at the end of the day, one, we're not from places of coral reefs, and two, whatever country we're working in, the reefs that are in that country matter most for the people who are there. So bringing them into the project, whether it's fishermen, students, local community leaders, you name it, um, is essential for really this long-term success of these projects. So we, um, we actually recently launched our first coral farm down in Grand Bahama mm-hmm. in partnership with the Grand Bahama Port Authority. And we already sort of, uh, we hired our first Bahamian staff member uh, just the other week and are looking to sort of expand it so that eventually this farm will be hopefully run by Bahamians while at the same time 
the farm being on land, we make it really fun, interactive, and informative. So it's it's both a tourism attraction for guests visiting the island as well as an education center for local students. So hopefully we can sort of empower and inspire the, the next generation of ocean caretakers. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned a moment ago that you decided with Gator to make this a social enterprise business and not a nonprofit organization. And part of that was because you wanted to accelerate the uh, the process and not depend on grant money, which also can come with a lot of restrictions as well. So then who mm-hmm. would your potential customers be? So we'd have sort of two main ways of, of generating revenue. One is selling reef restoration as a service, and the other I just touched on is sort of ecotourism. So mm-hmm. with, with as we grow farms to restore the reefs, we figured let's, let's make this uh, a place that people can come visit. And so we'll generate revenue by guests visiting the coral farm. If they're really excited, they can adopt corals, whether they're in person or even on their computers. They can plant them, uh, the corals, that is, with uh, local dive shops. And so you have this whole opportunity to basically um, support our, our operations through that ecotourism experience. And then what we're looking at, again, is that, that coastal protection and fisheries and tourism benefits that reefs provide so we can sell restoration to developers, hotels, governments, coastal insurance companies, cruise lines, uh, international development agencies, corporate sponsors, you name it. Anyone who cares about or has skin in the game on the benefits reefs produce can hire us to restore the reefs they depend on because if they don't take care of these reefs um, and they they disappear, then they're going to be in a really tough spot because they'll no longer be able to benefit from them like they once were. How is that piece of it working? Because sometimes when a great community benefits from the largesse of a of an individual hotel or a real estate developer, eh, everybody wants this to happen, but they don't want to be the ones to pay for it. So I'd be curious as to how uh, that, that part of it has been, been going for you. Sure. So we uh, our first partnership actually was with the Grand Bahama Port Authority mm-hmm. uh, here in Freeport, where we're, we're based. We yeah. just launched our first coral farm uh, with them, it's the world's first land-based commercial farm, and they basically saw how uh, reefs are really valuable to everything that they care about. And I think a, a good example of how you can sort of navigate this issue of the commons is if you have a, a, a reef off of, say, your hotel, and you restore it, uh, the hotel down the road could potentially, uh, you know, send their their snorkeler guests over to that hotel. But one, they won't be able to really fill room nights or, or use any sort of positive PR around the work they've done to restore the reefs, but also uh, they won't benefit from that coastal protection value. Yeah. So right now, actually, Swiss Re, it's one of the largest reinsurance companies in the world. They're piloting a scheme down in Mexico with hotel owners, the Mexican government and the Nature Conservancy, basically saying, hey, hotel owners, if you pay to restore the reefs off your property, we're going to lower your insurance premiums. Mm-hmm. So if a hotel restores that reef right off their property – they are able to directly benefit from it. And anyone else who tries to dovetail off that, they're not going to get that wave protection value. So not only will they deal with the damages, but they also won't get that premium discount from the insurance company. So it is an important question, and it's one that we're going to be navigating. But when you're able to demonstrate the direct benefits you have to sort of restoring that reef, it makes it a much easier sell to customers. Very interesting. What has the uh, response of governments been? Thus far, great. So the government of the Bahamas fully supports our project. Um, we actually have the deputy prime minister come to our grand opening and give remarks. That's cool. And our plan is to start uh, in 2020, likely scaling 
model uh, to countries around the world. We want uh, coral farms in every country and territory with reefs. And we've already started discussions with island nation governments in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean, in the Red Sea, um, who are interested in how uh, large-scale restoration can benefit their communities. So we're getting a lot of good response, both from the sort of regulator side of things, dealing with the permits, as well as uh, governments looking at ways that they can tap into international funding mechanisms like the Green Climate Fund or uh, blue bonds, debt for adaptation swaps, where they can pay for these uh, restoration activities. Mm -hmm. I know you started uh, scuba diving, Sam, when you were 13 years old, but this certainly is an interesting career path you have chosen. How did it all come about? That is a, <laughs> an interesting journey for me because if you'd asked me five or six years ago, you're going to be a coral farmer, I would have looked at you with an <laughs> odd expression because I would have had no idea what that was. Yeah. Um, I actually I grew up wanting to work on international diplomacy. Uh, growing up in D.C., I went to D.C. public schools, and I was interested in education reform. But basically in college, I ended up studying climate change when I sort of recognized that it was an existential and direct threat to everyone everywhere and that it touched on so many issues I cared about. Um, and originally I was coming at it more from the policy perspective. I, my senior thesis was on climate change as a national security threat and was sort of thinking about a range of different things I want to do. Got into grad school at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, mm -hmm. which is where I met my co-founder, Gator. Um, but I took a gap year beforehand, and I went out to the country of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, where a friend of mine from college had started up a small NGO called Eli Africa. And he was like, I'd love for you to set up the environmental branch of the organization in your gap year. And I was like, 22, tropical island for a year. I think I can do that. That sounds great. And one of the projects I got going was a United Nations-funded coral farm in partnership with the Mauritius Oceanography Institute. So I got to see fishermen returning to a lagoon they had abandoned 10 years before, setting up their traps 100 yards away from the historic reef because there was so much more life. But what was also clear from that experience was one grant from the U.N. to restore 5,000 corals isn't sustainable, when, especially when you think about this being a global problem. Um, there are other limitations with the, the traditional means of doing coral farming. You usually have underwater uh, coral farms that don't really scale. You can't really grow the corals faster or make them more resilient, not to mention if a storm happens or a fisherman drops his anchor, the whole project can wash away. Um, so I knew that there was potential, but also saw that there, there had to be something different and better and bigger. And so when I got to grad school, became friends with Gator, and we were thinking about big environmental challenges that policy and academia and, and nonprofits weren't solving quickly or big, uh, bigly, uh, to, to, to use a famous word of recent time, but uh, they weren't doing it bigger fast enough. And um, we thought, what if we create a mission-driven business where uh, customers that depend on these reefs can pay to restore them so that we, way we can unlock the large-scale reef restoration needed to keep reefs alive. And, and that led me to launching Coral Vita. Very cool. Well, let me close with this, Sam. And although you are a mission-driven business, and I know there are opportunities for people to visit the, the land coral farm, but not too many people are going to be able to make it down that way. Is there a way for the public to get involved in this in any kind of fashion? Absolutely. Uh, as as far as, you know, you can follow us at Coral Vita Reefs on our social media for Instagram and all that kind of stuff. But we also are um, starting a campaign around adopting corals. So we'd love for people to be able to come down to Grand Bahama as we launch more farms to come to, to farms all around the world and, and get in the water with us. But uh, you can even uh, just adopt a coral sitting at your computer. How does that work? Um, as well as also, so we, uh, you go on our website, 
www.coralvita.co, uh, not .com. And uh, you can find a, a link to adopting uh, coral, and basically we'll grow and outplant a coral for you, and you'll get a certificate. And um, however many you'd like to adopt, if you want to give it as a birthday or a holiday gift, um, or you're just feeling like doing something fun for the ocean, you can, you can make a difference yourself um, by following on with that. The other thing I would also say, though, um, which is really important, is that ultimately the best thing to do for coral reefs is to stop killing them. And we really need our leaders in government and in business and in the media to really address the things that are killing them. Um, so I would encourage people to, to go out and, and tell their representatives or anyone they know that can make a difference on the policy side of things to really enact measures to take care of the planet because at the end of the day, the planet takes care of us. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sam Teicher, the co-founder of Coral Vita, I want to thank you so much for being here and for such an interesting conversation. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Denver, thanks for having me on and looking forward to seeing you on the reefs one day soon. (laughs) Absolutely. And that is this week's show. Next week, my guest will be Amit Paley, the CEO of the Trevor Project. They operate a national 24-hour toll-free suicide hotline for LGBTQ youth. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And I hope you do return next Sunday evening for the business of giving. The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of the business of giving. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.